0: good to see us starting to fill up some seats in here some people recovering and some people that have been away are coming back and we're excited about that I really I still believe when when all this started and we were we were uh, doing church from home uh, and I spoke this message called the surge and, and just prophetically God had spoken into my heart that uh, that there was going to be a surge of, of people looking for hope coming into not only our body, but just into churches uh, across the nation, and I really still believe that's coming, and I think that, you know, we're uh, we're just on the edge of that. Uh, we're just on the edge of that. So um, I'm just really, really thankful to to see some faces that we haven't seen in a while, and even some new faces here. That's that's really, really awesome. It's really awesome. Before I get into this, let's pray today. Lord, we're thankful just to be here. God, what a blessing it is to come into. Your house, Lord, and to gather together here as a family to bring you glory, Lord, to worship you, God. Lord, I just surrender this time to you. We surrender this time to you, God. Lord, we desire uh, for you to speak into our hearts, God. We don't want to just, uh, we don't want to leave here the same, God. We don't want to have, we don't want to hear your words and um, accept it as an idea or a concept. We want to uh, accept your words as a, a reality, Lord. So, Um, I just surrender my voice to you today, Lord, and we surrender our ears and our hearts to you today, God, and we just ask for you to speak uh, to us, Lord. Meet us here, God. We're so thankful that you're a God that that is alive in us today, God, and that you desire to meet with us here today, Lord. So we just give this time to you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, my uh, message title today is The Great Wedding. And um, I'm just going to jump right into this. Uh, I'm going to start in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. And this is what it says. Blessed be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus is the redemption plan for all of creation. In him is the fulfillment of prophecy and the redemption of all things, and in him is the marriage of heaven and earth. And that's really important. That statement sets the stage for the rest of this message today. We have to understand that in Jesus, heaven and earth, the the marriage of heaven and earth happens in Jesus. Jesus is the redemptive plan uh, for us. Uh, Next verse, uh, John chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. And what's happening in this verse is John the Baptist is baptizing people, and uh, Jesus shows up on the scene. And uh, John's disciples come to him and say, Jesus is baptizing people on the other side of the Jordan, and all of the people that would normally come to us are now going to him. And the, and the way that they present this show that there may be a little bit ticked off that Jesus is kind of stealing their thunder. And uh, John's response to them is this, you yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And uh, hold on, let me just... I, Let me just finish up this. This let me find this here. Verse twenty nine: The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and my, I must decrease. So John's response to his disciples is basically to say, listen, I, I have been baptizing these people into his possession and not into my possession. He says the one who the bride belongs to is the bridegroom. The one who the bride belongs to is the groom, and it's not, it's not me. It's not John. It, it's Jesus, and he's been baptizing people into their possession, and now that Jesus into Jesus' possession, and now that Jesus is on the scene, it's time for John to step off of his platform so that Jesus can step onto his. And that's essentially what John is saying to him. This is one of the first places in Scripture where somebody in the New Testament identifies Jesus as the groom and the church or his believers as the bride. And I have been uh, studying this a little bit. I've been studying uh, uh, this idea of Jesus being the groom and us, the church, and a body of believers, uh, being a bride. And um, I like to read uh, books about ancient Near Eastern culture or the culture of the people that would have written scriptures. Because although Jesus, the scripture is inspired by God, it was still written by a people in their culture, uh, to a people in their culture. And so even though God in his... his, uh, great knowledge, knew that we would 2,000 years later be reading these scriptures. He still, it was still written, and he still used people who lived within a culture. So I like to study these things because it tends to give depth to scripture. So when you learn about the culture of the people who actually wrote the scriptures, it gives depth to scripture, and, and giving depth to scripture gives depth to Jesus, and giving depth to Jesus gives depth to Jesus' love for me. And I like to know how much Jesus loves me, so I like to study this stuff so that I could know how, how much Jesus loves me. And uh, the, I, so I've been studying, and I was learning in this one book about the, their culture, about the marriage process um, in ancient Israel. And the marriage process in ancient Israel is a little bit different than, uh, the, than what we know of as the marriage process. And um, I'll tell you a little funny story. When I was going to get... When I wanted to get engaged to Emma, um, I knew that I had to go and, and ask Howard. And I, uh, she was out shopping one day, and I called Howard, and I asked him if he was going to be home. And he said, yeah. I said, all right, I'm going to stop over for a second. I had a motorcycle at the time. So I hopped on my motorcycle, and I was going down 46, going to um, talk to him. And I was so scared that I was thinking on my way over there. I'm sweating, and I'm thinking, I shouldn't have rode my motorcycle because I might actually pass out on my motorcycle on my way to ask Howard if I can marry his daughter. But I made it, and he, and he said yes, and, and, and I'm thankful that he said yes. And uh, and then a few weeks later, I proposed to Emma right here in this spot. I told her that uh, this has nothing to do with my message, but everybody likes to hear a good engagement story. At least the girls do, so I'm going to tell you anyway. Right? <laughs> I told I played basketball in the gym in the morning, and then... Uh, uh, I told her, we went out to dinner at night, and I told her, I think I forgot to, to turn the lights off in there. So I came back here, and then I went back out to the car, and I told her, there's some lights on in the sanctuary, and I need you to come look and see if if uh, if we should turn these off. And she she looked at me, and she said, if you didn't turn the lights on, why would you turn them off? And I said, can you just come look at them? And she was like, whatever. So she came in, and I had these rope lights going down the center aisle here, and some balloons, and and I had the ring was up here on the stage, and we started walking down and then there was a picture that popped up on the screen of our first date, right? So romantic. Right. <laughs> if anybody needs any tips on, on engagement ideas, I'm the guy because I nailed it. I'm just saying I nailed it. And we got married right here too. And actually, in all honesty, the fact that we got engaged right here and then we got married right here um, becomes more and more special in every season of my life. So uh, that, ha- that was just a good, cool, cool story for you guys. But um, the, the process of engagement in ancient Israel's time was a little bit different than the process of engagement uh, that we know of. And the first thing that would happen in the process of engagement or the marriage proposal process in ancient Israel's time um, is the man who wanted to marry this girl he would go to her father and he would present to her an offering and the offering was meant for a couple reasons the first was um, that families back then every person in the family pitched in to uh... aid in the livelihood of the family so uh... the offering was a financial offering to help aid in the fact that this man was about to lose a part of his family but it was also and most importantly it was to signify the love this man had for his daughter. So this man didn't want to go to the father with five bucks and say, here, I love your daughter, $5 worth. He wanted to take something significant to this man to show that he loved her this amount of money's worth. I'm so glad when I went to ask Howard, he didn't ask me for a couple thousand bucks because I probably only had like 15 bucks on me at that time. So it would have been bad. Here, here, Howard. Here's fifteen dollars and three paper clips. How's, how's that? <laughs> but, but with that didn't happen. So, thank God. So the, that's the first part of the process. Is that is the the man would go to the father and he would ask and he would offer this offering. The father would accept this offering. And now comes the second phase of the the marriage proposal process with um, the engagement process. And the man would go to the to the woman. And he would pour a glass of wine for her and he would offer her the glass of wine. She would take a sip of the glass of wine to accept the offering. So she would accept his marriage proposal by taking a sip of the glass of wine. Then the man would take a drink of the glass of wine and that would um, essentially seal their marriage. Now at this point they're married even though they're about to spend a year apart. Um, they're married, and if they were to decide to split up, they would actually have to go through the normal divorce procedures of that time in order to, to divorce. So they're married at that point, and um, and now is the time for the man to leave and go back to his father's house. He would leave the, his new bride with her father, and he would return to his father's house in order to uh, prepare a home for them to live in. Um, before he left, he would leave gifts for his, his bride. So he would take gifts to her and he would give her these gifts. And, and the gifts were not just to signify his love and his gratefulness for her, but they were meant to, over the course of the next year, that he was going to be preparing a home for them um, to remind this woman um, of, of her beloved and remind her that she has a groom that, that she loves. And the woman, she had a responsibility in this too, and it wasn't just to wait for him to finish the house, um, she was to prepare herself for, for marriage. And she would put a veil over her face every time she left the house. If she was going anywhere, going into the market or going anywhere, she would veil her face. And that was just to signify that she belonged to her beloved now. And, uh, and so the man would go back to his father's house and he would build two places. First, he would build an addition on to his father's house, which was just one room. And this was called the wedding chamber. This is actually where we get our idea of a a honeymoon from. Um, The first seven days of marriage, after everything was complete and he would go back and get his wife, the first seven days would be spent in the wedding chamber. And because because sex was a way of... um, finalizing marriage, that's where the marriage would be completely finalized, or the marriage process would be completely finalized. And, and he would also build a home for them to actually live in. So there was a wedding chamber that would be built onto his father's house, and then there was an actual home that they would live in that he would build as well. And then he was preparing all this, and this took over the course of 12 to 18 months. Now during the course of those 12 to 18 months, the man and the, and the bride were not uh, able to see each other. So they lived apart. The man would would be preparing a place with his father, and the bride would live with her father uh, throughout this process of of him preparing a place for her. Um, when the time came, it was actually the the man's, the young groom's father who would release him. Um, so they assume that the, the father has experience in this marriage thing, and he can tell the son when the son is prepared enough to go and get his bride. So the young man's father is the one that would release him to go back and to take his bride. So the, when that time came, the father would release the young man, and he would go back to take his bride. And he would take with him his bride groomsmen or his friends and his family and he would normally go at night and uh, they would come and as they came close they would celebrate and blow their trumpets and their horns and 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 that was to let her know that they were coming that her groom had come home to, to take her with with him and uh so the groom would or the bride being as prepared as she had been sitting there probably sitting on the couch by the door with her bags packed every day for the past 12 months waiting for her groom to come home for her, and she would run out, and she would meet him at the gate. That was her duty, was she would run out to meet him at the gate, and that was to signify that she had been prepared for him, for his coming. They would go back and spend their seven days in the wedding chamber, and then they would live their lives married. When I I read this, immediately it started to add depth to some scriptures for me. And I'm just going uh, to read some of these scriptures and show you how Jesus actually fulfilled uh, many of these processes uh, through his ministry and through, through his life. And when, when it's referred to Jesus as the groom and the body of believers or the church as the bride, it's not just to signify that it's a love kind of like that, but it's also to signify and prophesy to a process in which Jesus is, um, is being unified to his body of believers, um, the first the first uh, phase of marriage process that that I talked about the one the first one that um, I'm going to show you where Jesus fulfilled this prophecy and that is when uh, the man would go to the man would go to the young woman's father she would he would go to the young woman's father and he would present an offering to her and we know that Jesus presented the greatest offering for us for his body in first peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 it says knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things but as, not with perishable things as silver and gold but with the precious blood of christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot jesus jesus it wasn't good enough for jesus to just bring a um, a gold or silver offering, a monetary offering. He was going to pay for his, bu- for his um, bride with the highest price of his life. And nobody was ever going to be able to top what he paid for for his, for his bride. So we know that Jesus fulfilled that first phase of the, the wedding process or the marriage process by, uh, by offering his life as an offering for his bride which is his body. The next phase uh, that we talked about would have been when he would have went to the bride. The young man would have went to the bride, and he would have taken a glass of, of wine to the bride. And this was to seal the marriage covenant between the two of them. He would offer her a drink of wine, and then he would himself take a drink of the same wine in order to seal that marriage. So in Matthew chapter 26, verse 27 through 29, Um, Jesus is sitting with his disciples. This is right before he's about to um, be crucified, and he knows it. And Jesus says some things as he's sitting there with his disciples at the Last Supper, that uh, not only would have Jesus been speaking directly into this marriage process, but the disciples would have recognized it directly as, as part of this marriage process. And this is what he says in verse 27. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink anew with it in my father's kingdom. So he's clearly making um, a statement in reference to the marriage process that they would have known of. And he's offering them a drink of wine, and he specifically says that this is my covenant to you. And that's what the marriage process would have looked like for them in that culture would have been a glass of wine as a covenant, and then they drank of the covenant, and he sealed that covenant, and he sealed that covenant with the people that he was going to, um, that he was going to call into, uh, starting his church. The disciples were the one that were going to be the first that uh, that went and started churches and planted churches and began to, to grow the kingdom of God and essentially pass out invites to this great wedding that was coming. Um, the, the next process that, that would happen, obviously, would be the, the gifts. The, the young man would leave gifts for his bride in order to remind his bride of him during his time that he would be away. And we know that Jesus left gifts for us, specifically in Ephesians chapter 1, starting verse 11. It, um, it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of, of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, might be to the praise and glory in Him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with a promise Holy Spirit, who was the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So the Holy Spirit is the guarantee or the seal of that promise. The Holy Spirit's design and goal, the the, the heart of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus all the time. If you ever need to test whether something is the Holy Spirit or your own mind, you can just simply ask yourself, does this point to Jesus? Because the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. I think the cool thing about the Holy Spirit and the cool thing about the knowledge of God Himself and the goodness of God Himself is the Holy Spirit isn't just a gift himself, but he gives gifts to us as well. So it's like the gift that never stops giving. So Jesus leaves and he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit in order to remind us of the way that Jesus loves us. And the Holy Spirit gives us gifts in order to edify us, both as a body and and as individuals, some, some of the gifts, like the gift of prophecy, might edify us as a body, but the gift of tongues might edify just us as, a, as an individual. So he gives us these gifts in order to edify us, or in order to bring us into close union with Jesus, even while Jesus isn't physically here on earth with us. Jesus is inside of us, but his physical being is not here. His physical home is not is not here in the present. So the Holy Spirit is a gift to remind us of the love of our groom for us. And the Holy Spirit gives us gifts in order to build that union or strengthen that union even in this time. In John chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through Three, Jesus is talking again to his disciples and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is, this is God's promise to us, and not just his promise to the disciples. This is his promise to us as well. That he's leaving, but he's going to his father's house in order to prepare a place for us. This is, this is a clear um, parallel of the marriage process that they would have known in that time. He's going to prepare a place for us, and if he goes to prepare a place for us, will he not come back for us again? That's the fourth phase of this marriage process. And the final phase of this marriage process, the prophetic return of Jesus that John prophesied about in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride... Has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So there's five phases to this marriage process, and we are waiting on phase five. I think there's times where I have in my life have have thought it would have been so much easier to live in a time where Jesus was just physically here with us, you know? It would have been so much easier. But in reality, we are closer to redemption than they were. We have seen the fulfillment of four of the five marriage, five processes of marriage that that Jesus fulfilled. He fulfilled four of them, and we are waiting for five. And five is going to come out of nowhere. It's not one that we can, ex- we can know when it's going to come. It's just going to come. And it's going to come with the trumpets blasting and Jesus' return. And that's, that's, that's just the truth of it. That is the, the, pr- the prophecy that Jesus not only has fulfilled, but that he is fulfilling. He is coming back again. In Acts uh, chapter 1 the disciples are are watching jesus essentially ascend into heaven sorry i got to make sure my notes are right here sometimes i write so many bible verses i'm like did i get that right And essentially what is, what is happening in this is, I don't even know if I got the right verse, to be honest with you. I'm just going to skip over that part and I'm going to tell you about it. <laughs> I don't have time to look it up. <laughs> uh, what is uh, happening here, uh, the disciples are watching Jesus ascend. So Jesus is resurrected from the, the grave and now he's spending his ministry time here as the resurrected Jesus and he is now ascending into heaven. The disciples are talking to Jesus and he ascends up into heaven, up into the clouds. And they're standing there looking up at the, up the sky as they watch him ascend into heaven. And right after he leaves, an angel shows up on the scene. And the angel looks at them and says, what are you doing? What are you doing standing here? Because the same way that he left, he's coming back. And I think what's amazing about this is that the disciples took it literally. And they knew that that Jesus was coming back. And not only that Jesus was coming back, but they expected that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. They expected that they would never see death, that they would uh, be, they would experience the homecoming of Jesus. They expected it, and they lived their lives as if they expected it. And I think sometimes um, when I look at us, not us as a body, but, but just the global body of believers, myself included, I think sometimes we can live like like a bride that has been waiting 2,000 years for our groom. You know, for the disciples, the hope was so real, they so expected that Jesus was was coming back, that they lived their lives in such a reckless and crazy manner because the only thing that mattered to them was the gospel. The only thing that mattered to them was there was a great wedding coming, and they were going to hand out invites to every single person that they knew existed. And I think sometimes of um, the body of believers, and again, this is myself included, I've been reflecting on this in my own heart, have have kind of let the return of Jesus be dolled out a little. I heard oh, this one guy that I follow, and he's a great pastor, and I've learned a ton from him, and he said uh, uh, during this one one message, he said that he didn't think that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime, and I thought that's that's sad, and not because Jesus is definitely coming back in our lifetime, but that we are called into the duty of expectation. Like, we are called into, into living a life that is expecting that Jesus is coming back, not only just in our lifetime, but maybe today. Because there's going to be a day, and there's going to be a person that, that, that prophesies to Jesus' return in their lifetime, and they're going to be right. This lady at my work, she, she has been telling me, uh, as soon as this pandemic and all this chaos in America has been happening, she keeps telling me that she has a plane ticket out of here, and she's just waiting for Jesus to come. And she knows he's coming, and she's pretty sure it's going to be real soon, and she just feels like she's got her plane ticket out of here. And I told her, I said, Patty, you know what? They, people have been saying that for 2,000 years. And someday somebody's gonna be right. And it's our our responsibility to live like it could be today. To prepare as a bride like it could be today. I mean, I mean, imagine being the bride of Christ as Jesus is Jesus' return, and we have been hanging out, not expecting him to come. Imagine being the bride who who hears the, the trumpets and, and has to scramble around to collect her stuff. Because she wasn't sitting by the door prepared, that she hadn't spent her time preparing for the groom to come home. When when me and Emma were about to get married, and really from the moment of engagement uh, for the next I don't even know nine months before we got married or something like that, um, there wasn't a day that went by that I didn't uh, think about that. There wasn't a day that gone by that I didn't do something in preparation for that marriage. The week before we were married, she used, she would come over every every night, and we would uh, we would go for a run. That was just kind of what we did, and we because we wanted to be real thin. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we ran 17 miles that week, and I haven't run 17 miles before that, and I ain't run 17 miles since then. And <laughs> but that week we ran 17 miles because we were like determined to be in our absolute best for our wedding day. And there wasn't a day where I woke up and said, you know what, I don't really feel like it today. I'm just, you know what, this day is not that important. It it doesn't really matter. I'm just going to take the day off. Because because we didn't have time. We knew that 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 day was coming, and there was not time to waste. And the disciples, when they lived in their time, they lived like that. Like there was no time to waste. In Acts chapter 14, Paul says, uh, goes to uh, this, this city called Lystra and he, Paul is going everywhere to preach the gospel. This is really amazing. If you actually map out Paul's journey, Paul is actually traveling from as far east as he knew of his existence to as far west as he knew of his existence. So in Paul's mind, Jesus was coming back and he was given the great commission to go and preach the gospel to all the nations and he took it literally and he literally thought, I'm going from, from one side of existence to the other side of existence since he didn't know the world was round. And all he knew was that as far as I know this way to as far as I know that way, I'm going and I'm preaching the gospel. And that's why when Paul would be thrown into prison or something like that, he wasn't phased by it because he knew that God had given this com- him this commission. If God had given him this commission, that God was going to see it through. God had told him to go and, and, and preach the gospel to all nations. And he said, well, if God said that to me, then I, then it must mean that he's going to make a way for me to go and preach the gospel to all nations. And he lived his life like that. In Acts chapter 14, he ends up in this, this city called Lystra. And um, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, because I believe that it shows the heart of Paul and his commitment to the gospel. Uh, the, these, these surrounding cities, the one uh, is called Iconium. These guys, uh, these Jews they get together some people and they roll him up they roll up this mob and they go into this city and they and they stone Paul and they beat Paul and they drag Paul to the, the very outskirts of the city and they leave him there assuming that he's dead so if you could imagine how beat up Paul must have been for people to leave him there assuming that he is dead the scripture says that the disciples gathered around him And Paul got up. Now, it doesn't doesn't note to, to prayer or even a miraculous healing. It just says that Paul was able to get to his feet. Paul stood up, and the next day he went back into the city. The next day. Imagine being stoned, had rocks thrown at your head until people thought you were dead. And the next day you go back into that place where you got rocks thrown at your head until people thought you were dead. And the reason he did that was because there was a wedding coming. And those people, he didn't get to give them an invite yet. And he was going to make sure he get an invite into their hand before the wedding comes. And he didn't have time to waste. And he trusted that, you know what, if God, if, if those guys wanted to throw stones at my head, it must have been because God intended for me to get thrown stones thrown at my head. And now I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell them about Jesus. In Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul is about to go into Jerusalem. And this one prophet comes to him. And he, and he, and he explains to him, that prophesies to him, that he's going to go into Jerusalem and he's going to get bound and beat. And his and Paul's family and friends beg him not go into Jerusalem, because they know that this prophet is telling the truth. And Paul knows that this prophet is telling the truth. And you know what Paul does? He goes to Jerusalem. And he gets bound and beat. And 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 nothing mattered to Paul but the gospel. Nothing mattered to him but the gospel. And if God was going to allow for him to walk into a city and be bound and beat, so be it. He's going to praise God in in, in the prison. And people are going to get saved in the prison. And everywhere Paul went, his only goal was to hand out invites to this great wedding. And everything else was secondary, and nothing else mattered. Only that people received invites to this wedding. I, I believe that the body of Christ today is being called to re-engage in the hope of the return of Jesus. And not just the hope of the, the, that Jesus will return someday, but the hope that Jesus could return today. When I look around uh, at our society, I see that we are in a massive identity crisis. Everybody is in a massive identity crisis. If you turn on the news or turn on the TV, all you see is identity crisis. And as a society, we've turned things like victimhood into a brotherhood. And we've allowed, uh, we've, we've allowed victims to feel like they belong to something. So, so people um, to kind of fight their way into victimhood in order to belong to something. And I think that deeply, because I believe that we were all created f- uh, by Jesus for Jesus... I believe that ingrained in the very being of every single one of us is the desire to know who we are and the desire to belong to something. And when I look around at a society that has made victimhood a brotherhood and has made uh, sexuality a brotherhood and has given people um, a, a place where they can feel like they belong, and what I see is, is, is this not just an identity crisis but all of creation groaning for the coming groom, groaning for the church to re-engage in the hope of the return of Jesus. I believe that it's possible us being made um, from the very breath of God, I think that it's possible that our spirits recognize the time and our spirits, even even non-believers, our spirits are begging for uh, reality of Jesus' return. We're begging to belong to Jesus. We're begging to know who we are as the bride of Christ. Number one, and we're begging to belong to Him. And I, I believe that I. Uh, one of our young people sent me this picture. Uh, I think it was yesterday, maybe two days ago. Um, so this person they knew had sent, gave him this card, and it was for the Satanic Temple. It was like a little business card, <laughs> and um, I laughed because I am that in, non-intimidated by Satan. Um, so he gave. they gave him this little little card that was for the Satanic Temple, and, and he sent me a picture of the front of it and just said the Satanic Temple on the back of it. It had all these good things that they believe in. Standing up for the goodness of humanity. And I just think, I thought, that whole thing contradicts itself. And I don't see somebody who is a big fan of Satan when they show me that card. I see somebody who is begging for Jesus. They're begging to know that they belong to something. They're begging for a church or a body of believers to stand up and tell them who they are. And I, I believe that we as a body, as a, as, a, as a church, we have the responsibility of re-engaging in that hope. And re-engaging in that hope means some things. It means, number one, that evangelism is not optional. If we're going to re-engage in the hope of the return of Jesus, evangelism is not optional. Being nice to people is not good enough. If the groom came back today, there would be a lot of people that didn't have an invite to the wedding because there was a lot of Christians who were really nice to them but wouldn't give them an invite to the wedding. And then the second thing that that means to to, to re-engage in the hope of Jesus' return, the possibility of Jesus' return in our lifetime, the possibility of his return tomorrow is, is this. Number two, every moment matters. Everything matters. There isn't time to waste. There isn't a day to waste. Everything matters. I remember when my son was born, I think the one revelation that it gave me was the importance of every single moment. And every single moment in our ministry, every single moment in our lives matters. I believe that even being a church, a little church in New Waterford, Ohio, that we could change the world. Because I believe that fire doesn't sit still. It doesn't stay home. It doesn't listen to boundaries. The holy fire that, that God in, intends to ignite in, in, a, in a body would ignite everything around us. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna close with this one verse in Revelation, chapter 22. And I'll tell you this: if there's people, if you, if there's anybody here and and you've not received an invite to the wedding, today's a good day for it. It's a good day for it. And you could do it right where you're sitting, or you can come up and somebody will help you through it. But there's not time to waste. There's not a day to waste. When John prophesied of the return of Jesus and all of heaven roared at his return, you know what it said? It said that the church, the bride, has made herself ready. And I read that and, and I believe that that is true that Jesus' return will be um, signified by the bride becoming ready. And I think that it's possible that Jesus' return is only waiting on our readiness. Jesus' return is only waiting on us to re-engage in that hope and to make ourselves ready to clothe ourselves in righteousness and, and, and hand out invites to this wedding and prepare ourselves as the bride. And the first day when we're sitting by that door with our bags packed, ready to go, he might come. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Jesus, we're thankful that you... um, that you have not only fulfilled prophecy but you're fulfilling prophecy lord and for we're thankful that we get to engage in the hope that you are going to come back for us that what you started you'll finish and that we aren't just waiting to die lord we're waiting for you so we submit ourselves to intentional waiting we submit ourselves to, re-engaging in the hope that you could return any day. And we prepare ourselves, Lord. We, We clothe ourselves in righteousness. Lord, light a fire in us that has no boundaries, God. Put a fire in this body that has no boundaries, Lord, fill us with your purpose, and and uh, and send us, God. We're ready, Lord. We're ready for you, Jesus. Lord, be with us as we as we hand out our wedding invites. Lord, as we engage in evangelism, Lord, be with us. Lord, let your spirit and our gifts remind us of your love for us. Lord, we love you and we'll wait for you. In Jesus' name, amen.